All right, let's make a start, okay? okay? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Today, I've uh, got a new invitee on the podcast, and it's Amy Lam, who is based very far north of the UK in Scotland. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Amy is the head of intellectual property at uh, Pragmatic Scotland. And I must admit, intellectual property is something that I know very little about. So I'm really interested to hear from Amy how she got into IP, like we like to say, and the world of commercialization and how she moved from being a, a PhD researcher into something that's uh, still a bit of a mystery to me and to many others in research. So Amy, do you want to start by telling us where did you do your PhD? How did it all start? So I, I did my PhD at Glasgow University. And as you can tell, I'm not Scottish. I come from south of London. Decided that there was a particular programme of research that, that, that I was really intrigued by. And at the time of my sort of PhD studies, stroke research was a, a really big area. So that's when I sort of went into, into neuroscience. And it was very much looking at ways of protecting against neurone damage and trying to figure out how we could limit the damage that, that people suffer as a result of stroke. Stroke is, is still one of the, the big three killers. You know, it's, it's, it's always been given that tag of, of the silent killer because it's, you, you don't know it's happening until it's too late. The thing that particularly excited me about this PhD was it was an industrial studentship. So it was aligned very well with the research and translational activities of Big Pharma, whose portfolio included neuroscience as, as a, a sort of key area for them and that's what I spent sort of three four years doing I'd started out previously as a pharmacologist that was my first degree down in London so it was really kind of an ex expansion of my initial studies and kind of the goal at the time I guess was was to work in industry some PhD programs, the project is itself is part of a collaboration with industry. So was it the case that was a project linked with a company or was it slightly different? No, yeah, it was absolutely linked with a company. So, you know, I had my industrial supervisors down in, in Surrey and my PhD was heavily dependent on the, chem the medicinal chemistry that was coming out of their labs. And, and trying to work out what was going on with these particular agents. Our group in Glasgow had specific in vivo expertise that we didn't, you didn't kind of find um, routinely. So there was, there was that advantage for them to, to be able to work with us. So as part of your PhD, did you also spend time in the, in the company that your PhD was linked? Uh, was it kind of doing research in, in two settings, uh, the academic lab and the industrial lab? Uh? Yeah, most of my work was mostly in the academic lab, but I did um, spend um, a good few months down in their own labs to certainly there were other techniques that I needed to learn. So there was a lot of sort of knowledge exchange that way and, and collaboration. So while the majority of the work took place in Glasgow, I would, I would go down to the labs, learn the new techniques that I needed to, to take back. And basically, you know, we were able to set up a whole new kind of lab facility in Glasgow on the back of that as well but it gave us a sort of a, a bigger breadth of, of activity and you know another notch in the belt as it were to in terms of what we could do. 
How do you think that your experience differed from people who didn't have the, this link to industry? I remember when I worked at the University of Sheffield, sometimes the, the challenges that PhD students whose projects were linked to industry in terms of the way they were able to present at conferences where often they felt quite inhibited because they had, they had to go through so many loops in terms of getting the agreement from the industrial partner in terms of presenting papers at conferences and so on, it felt really challenging. In your experience, what was really positive, different, and maybe challenging in, in the experience? Yeah, I found the experience really positive. I didn't, you know, I didn't experience some of those delays. Um, things always moved quite smoothly. The challenging thing was actually getting hold of the drugs. So the, their own you know, development processes took longer than they thought it would. So, you know, that was the frustration for me when I was, you know, an excited, bright-eyed new PhD student trying to get on with some research, but not having any active agents to work with. So, you know, where, where does that leave you uh, in terms of being able to kind of progress your own studies? So that, was, that was the biggest challenge for me. But I guess, you know, coming back to your question, it gives you, I think gives you just a, a, a different outlook. It, it automatically opens up a kind of another door in terms of how people work in research that is different from different from from what happens in in the academic setting. That's something that I've always kind of been you know quite mindful of is is sort of having that that exposure. So during your your PhD, what were the the sort of the experiences that really triggered your sort of career direction? Because we all start PhD with certain ideas and the experience of actually doing the research can completely reshape the way we, we, we see in the future. How did the experience of actually doing the research kind of shift your, your, your way of thinking about your future in a different way? It, yeah, this is, this is quite an interesting one. I've never set out to do a PhD. Never. It wasn't something that, that I had had a particular drive to, to do. When I started out with my undergraduate degree, I kind of, I wanted to work in industry. And that was, that was the thing that was driving me at the time. I had industry experience then. So before, before university, you know, I, I, I did some holiday jobs for drug companies. And as part of my undergraduate, again, that, you know, that had an industrial component to it. And then they re then recruited me afterwards to work for them after I finished my degree. But it was only through talking to, you know, people there in their own experiences and, you know, always asking me, you know, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And sometimes it's you just don't know at that stage. It's, it's so early. And for me, it was it, it was really that kind of head scratching. moment. It's like, I don't not really sure I'd like to work in industry. And, you know, everybody had kind of. I think without without fail, everybody I spoke to had said, "Well, you know, you should think about doing a PhD." Because again, just in terms of where you position yourself in industry, then it opens up a lot more doors, and you can move and progress up within within the company environment. Whereas their view was always, if you finish with a, a good first degree yes you can you can get a good job in industry but there's always going to be a bit of a ceiling in terms of where you can go so it was only at that point that the idea of a, a PhD really kind of seeded into my brain to think actually 
this is maybe something I need to look into. So, so yeah, it wasn't ever, it wasn't ever that well planned. I would say it was, it was a sort of bit of a, bit of an accident. And I guess, you know, you, you look back because it's been a long time since I've been in the lab. You look back and, you know, things, things happen. You kind of think that things do happen for a reason. I think the, the PhD had interesting challenges and it, it took me into academia again and not into immediately into the industrial setting that, that maybe I had imagined, you know, previously. So what, what were the opportunities that you took during the course of your PhD that uh, in a way positioned you well to transition into the, the type of work that you ended up doing? Because often as PhD students, there is a fine balance to manage and also for postdocs between doing the research work and taking opportunities. And I've spent so many years you know, working as a researcher developer, telling people, you know, don't just sit in the lab just doing that. Although it's the core part of what you're there for, but at the same time, all of these other opportunities are really the things that are going to shape, you know, the, the transition into what, what you will be able to do. So in, in your case, what, what were these opportunities that you took or decided not to take? Yeah, I think for my PhD, it, was, it wasn't an easy PhD. I had a lot of negative results. I still got some really good peer-reviewed articles out of it. But it was very, it was hard going. And that really made me think about kind of, you know, is this, is this really, is this really for me? But I think the opportunities came, I guess, when I wanted to give research a bit more of a go as a postdoc. And some of those opportunities were, it was in the US. So, so that they were just a little bit more forward thinking at the time around this kind of support early stage researchers got. You know, you can go off and try different things. I remember in our lab, you know, we had a, a PhD, a new graduate student who was an ex-banker. And he was, he basically retired from banking. And his wife was so sick of seeing his face at home. She just told him, you need to go off and do something. So he decided to go and study for a PhD. This man was in his 50s, you know. It's just a different attitude. Um, And as part of that, you know, there were a lot of opportunities to find out what other people did outside of your own kind of narrow sort of research field. I think you can get a little bit, you kind of lose sight sometimes of, of the greater world um, and what's out. So, yeah, so we got exposed to a lot of different people. I took opportunities like um, judging for science fairs, you know, with high school students, mentoring, again, you know, students that, that wanted a STEM career you know, right from sort of kind of 10, 11 year olds through to 16, 18 year olds and then university graduates. And those opportunities were there to, to be able to kind of help get a broader sense of, of who you are and what you can do. And also my mentor was very good about delegating things like reviewing articles. And so again, just, you know, getting used to sort of communicating science and analyzing data in a way that's not just your own research area all of those things were, were opportunities that, that you kind of were able to get involved with if you wanted to and equally there'd be people who just you know would say no that's not for me I'll, I'll just I'll just continue what I'm doing 
So how did your shift into knowledge transfer, intellectual property? I don't know what, what's the right umbrella term to talk about it. How did this happen? I, I decided that, that a career in research, whether it be in academia or sort of doing bench research in industry, really was something that I didn't see myself doing in the long term. And it came about just trying to, I don't actually know where the seed of, of what I do now kind of came from. I, I had an interest in intellectual property. And they, this was through, again, just some of the opportunities I had as a postdoc where we, we got to meet people in, from different walks of life who had used their research training in, in slightly different ways. And it, it, it was just purely my own kind of need to find something else to, to get my teeth into that I would enjoy. And I was lucky I had other people around me who were, you know, wanting to make that same transition. So definitely having a support network around you of like-minded people who feel, you know, that whatever it is, you, you're all, you've all kind of got a common goal in terms of where you want to either move next or thinking about career moves and things. Having that ability to kind of talk through things, bouncing ideas off each other um, and really kind of trying to understand what it is, what it was I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to make use of my scientific training but in a slightly different way. And I think, you know, my time in industry also allowed me to sort of see kind of that whole development path of what it took to get a new drug to market and how long that process is. And I recognised for me, I didn't like the detail of doing research. That's, that's the thing. I mean, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy science but I didn't like the sort of detail of kind of doing the same thing over and over again. What I really enjoyed was seeing exciting new, you know, innovations, developments, how some, some discovery might, you know, change a particular treatment paradigm in the future. But you knew that kind of step between those two things was, was uh, you know, it's a, it's a long build-up. And I think what I do now allows me to tap into that. I get exposed to a lot of, you know, clever technology, clever ideas and clever ways in which that can help solve a problem. So I don't have to do the actual research. I just get to sort of, you know, see what's going on and see, you know, how that might, might change things for the future. And so what, what for, first step did you take? Because often that's what people find extremely challenging is from, you know, some people may have done several postdocs and, you know, kind of pull their hair out in terms of making a decision of what it is that they want to do next. And when they kind of identify, okay, maybe I could try that, then convincing yourself that you can actually start applying and finding a way of articulating what you have to offer because in a way you may not, you may not be convinced yourself that you can get a job into you know intellectual property based on having been a postdoc what was the sort of journey maybe within your own mind to actually tell yourself yeah I can do that and I'm going to start applying and that's the way I'm going to go about it it's a really big step and you know having that support network you know within our group it was always the same, oh, you know, will I regret doing it? Am I going to miss the research side of things? 
there's all these doubts that, that are in your head about, you know, whether is it the right thing to do? Am I going to be judged badly for it? And, you know, these are all things that can just eat away at you. But ultimately, it does come down to going, okay, taking that big breath and going, I am going to do it. And you have to set yourself up mentally to, to just take that jump. And what's the worst that can happen? I think that's the mantra I live by quite, quite often is, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You might get rejected. I got rejected, you know, many, many times for, for my, first, my first role. But for so many companies and organisations, they always need new staff members to come in. It's always going to be competitive. But, you, you know, you, you, have to make, you have to mentally prepare yourself to, to, make that, to make that leap. And, you know, if you want it, if you want it enough, you're going to make it happen. If you're sitting on the fence a little bit more, maybe you, maybe you haven't figured it out in your own mind yet. Maybe, you know, you, you still need to kind of take things a bit more slowly for yourself until there will become a tipping point, I think, uh, for, for you as to when, you, when you're prepared to make that jump. For some people, it's much quicker than for others. I mean, you know, we have, we have staff members in our own company that are fresh graduates and others who are fresh PhDs and others who have done postdocs, you know, they've all kind of come from an academic setting, but they wanted to, to do the kind of work that, that we're doing. So, you know, it's, it's that continuum of, you know, at what point do you, you think you need to make that, make that jump? How did you knew once you had taken that third step that that was the right thing for you? It was quite easy. I, I suddenly felt happy in my work. You know, I think research can be, it's, it's, it can be very lonely, for one. Um, it can be very competitive. And it depends on, you know, your personality. And what I enjoyed particularly was, you know, being able to talk to other people about their research and being able to share, you know, the passions that, that they have for their research and to, and to be able to, for me, you know, I like to be able to sort of see that translation of how that, that research can be applied. So it, it, it kind of ticked all those boxes for me. And also, you know, it's still, even now, I mean, I've been doing this for about 19, coming up to 20 years. I'm still learning every day. And that's something that I really enjoy about my role is, is that, you know, I'm constantly learning new stuff all the time. Can you take us on a, on a journey of understanding of what, what that type of role really entails? So the role I have now is I work for a, a consulting company called IP Pragmatics. And we're quite boutique. There's about sort of 12 full-time consultants that we have split between London, Edinburgh and Australia. And what we do is really help universities and companies kind of move their technology forward so that early stage commercialization and a lot of it is is you know uh, technology heavy so as part of that there's a lot of ip involved with it so you know depending on who we're working with our activities can be anything from carrying out research for them in terms of the market Is there, is there a market need for what you're doing? What that market is? What are, what are some of the, the drivers for that? 
are you meeting some of those unmet needs what's the what's the competition look like how do you stack up against that competition what does your intellectual property look like you know have you got strong ip again who are your who are you competing with is there any ip that you need to be aware of within that landscape so that kind of market research giving com- competitive intelligence for for companies and universities and also doing things like plotting out routes to markets for them so you know particular therapies or medical devices diagnostics have got so far and and our clients are really kind of trying to understand how, what's the best way to get to market and you know are there what certain considerations that, that they need to consider as part of that so we help them with that through to other clients who want us to help with partnering for them so they might be looking to acquire companies who are some of the target companies they should be looking at they might want us to help them with license negotiations so again just actually the transactions of their intellectual property and their technology and their expertise how do you structure a deal around that they may be looking for investment for example and they need to have a sensible conversation with investors how much is their ip worth so we will undertake those those ip valuations and again help frame some of the sort of key points for them in, in considering how to move those discussions forward so that's just some of the some of the things that, that we kind of get up to day to day. But you know, the base of that is is having that scientific background and being able to analyze and ask sensible questions to take things forward. What do you think makes a difference for people to um, in a way to do well within that field? You know, what are the, the, the qualities, competency? What what do you need to be really good? at that sort of role? I think we like well-rounded individuals. So we like to see people who have other experience that might not be directly related to to the job, but shows us that they have an ability to kind of work in in a different way, whether it's, you know, volunteer work or coaching work, sports activities, something else that shows that they can apply themselves in different ways because what we do changes so quickly. You know, we're often kind of put outside of our comfort zone. So we deal with particular projects where I won't be the subject technical expert. I'm working with a technical expert, but I need to be comfortable enough in that situation to be able to deliver what they want. So, you know, I'm bringing certain expertise that they don't have that would enable them to move their project forward. So there's always a lot of uncertainty around what we do. So having individuals that, you know, show that they're flexible, um, adaptable, having, you know, experience of of doing different things is always always very good. The communication side is, is another sort of key area for us. So being able to articulate yourself well, your research, being able to, to talk to, to people from different spheres of life. You know, we work with a lot of different professionals. So, so we kind of span the academic, you know, researchers, really sort of high, well-respected profs, down to sort of, you know, student, PhD students who are setting up their own companies, really smart people, but very focused on the research side. We work with CEOs from companies, 
chief financial officers, right through to commercial lawyers, IP lawyers, patent attorneys. And then we also work with kind of people who have just one man bands who have invented something and they've come to us for a bit of help and you know they they come from all walks of life so just being interested I guess in the people around you and being um, curious is very important for what we do but you know researchers have a lot of those skills already you did a master in intellectual property after your postdoc and that's something that often comes up in discussion with 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 PhD student and postdoc, when they're thinking about their transition, often they, they have a feeling that they absolutely have to retrain and do another degree, another master or whatever. Is this really necessary? Sometimes I feel it's almost a way of stopping themselves from taking the next step of actually applying for jobs in the specific field that you are in. Can people actually get their first job? Or do you see a lot of people doing another course before they're able to transition? Yeah, I would, I would agree, I agree with you that it's not necessary. You can get your first job without it. And I certainly got my first job without it. The train, the sort of formal master's piece of it only came when I was working there. It sometimes can be an artificial barrier that people put, put up in front of themselves to make that jump. Definitely, you can, you can use it as a crutch. I think, you know, if you're a, 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 a good, a qualif- well-qualified, have something to offer and you can show a company that you've got something to offer them, they'd be happy to, to, to recruit you because a lot of that job, you know, recognising these entry-level positions, you're going to get all the training on the job anyway. It's about sort of getting over that fear of needing to have that additional training. But I think for some, yes, there's absolutely a minimal level of training. But again, you know, certain companies, say in communications, they will provide some of that training for you and they will, you know, have an active cohort of people who will go through all the training together. For many jobs, it's on-the-job training and it's about putting yourself forward for why why you're good for that role what you think you can offer, what is it What is it you've done, what interests you about that particular role that, and how you can back that up to give recruiting teams sort of that additional bit of, bit of information to say, actually, yeah, let's, let's take a chance on this person. Because ultimately, everybody, everybody needs that first break. I had to go through exactly the same thing. You had to go through exactly the same thing. You make that transition from, from research. You just have to take that step. Everybody gets the, a first break. It might not seem like it when you're going through it, but 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 you you will get there. Can you share with us a project that through all your years working in you know in this field that you felt like that was like the most exciting, joyous, where I felt that really made something happen? God, it's so it's so hard to like. It feels unfair to sort of pick one thing out and, and leave out leave out so many others. I mean, you know, a lot of what we do is is very early stage. So it, it takes some years to sort of see the effects of that. I guess a couple of things really stick out. I'm always, I'm always in awe of oncologists and the research they do to make new cancer therapeutics. And when I've worked on programs that involve particular, onco- you know, oncology as a whole, 
I'm just always, I have always so much respect for, for what they do. And they're always like the loveliest people to work with as well. So, you know, not only are they doing amazing science um, and developing really potentially life-changing therapies, they're absolutely wonderful people as well. Which is, it's, you know, it's just lovely to be able to have the privilege to work with people like that. Can you tell us what's the sort of the career path like for somebody in this field? How have you navigated the career path within that discipline? Yeah, interesting question. Again, kind of looking back, you know, you use the word navigating. That makes it sound it's like quite well planned. <laughs> I would say it's for me, it's, it's I guess like I would probably, you know, use use the metaphor of uh, my, my career is probably been more like a treasure hunt. And it's it's how have I navigated my way through it. I've always I've always every with every role that I've had, I've taken new skills from it. I haven't stuck to the same thing. And what what it's allowed me to do is just build up my experience in lots of different areas. Because in what we do, it's there's there's such a wide range of roles even within that. So You know, there are people who just look after patent portfolios. There are patent attorneys whose roles are focused on drafting, prosecuting, litigating intellectual property. There are lawyers that role, whose, whose roles are purely on the legal side. There are commercial people whose roles are on external innovation and finding partners for trying to, you know, new technology that they want as part of their portfolio so so even within the sphere of you know what I do there are so many different aspects you could focus on and I guess when you look back at my CV I've kind of gone off and done specialized in each one of those so each role has focused on one particular area and, and given me an ability to sort of go slightly outside of that and there's other peripheral activities around it and then you know the next role will have filled in a gap that I didn't have before and so on and so on and actually that's kind of where it's led me to now for a consulting company is because I've been able to spend those last 15 years gathering up new treasures in terms of my experience it now puts me in a position where I can you know speak to clients and be able to advise them in maybe in a way that maybe if I'd come to that company 10 years ago, I wouldn't be offering quite the same, you know, background and, and experience. So it'll be different for everybody. It'll, you know, it'll be different for everybody in terms of what they want to focus on, what they enjoy. I mean, for me, early, early stage commercialization is something I've, I've really enjoyed doing and I get pleasure from it every day. I still really enjoy the work. I have no regrets about, you know, having made that change. So it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been fun and hopefully it'll continue to be fun. And I really like your metaphor of the, you know, the treasure hunt in some ways. It's a really nice way of thinking about it. But in your own experience, What's been the trigger in, in making a decision? Okay, I've done this role for two or three years. Now I'm going to go and get work in, in a different area or I'm going to apply for something else. What's the trigger to make the decision? Because, you know, so for some people, the comfort of 
doing in a role and having a sense of, I know what I'm doing, I'm doing this well. But they, you know, they end up maybe staying too long in a role. But in, in your case, what's the trigger to hop on to the next thing? There's been a number of different things, I guess. So it's, you know, there's been a mix of things right from the fact that within certain roles, I there was no there, there was no obvious progression and I wanted to progress. So the only way I could make that happen was to, to leave. So I might well have been very happy in that role, but I would be stuck there for the next, you know, X many years. And that wasn't what I wanted. So that would, you know, that that's a very active kind of uh, decision to say, actually, okay, I just need to seek out a new opportunity. So there's been, been roles where that's happened, other roles where there are things that I wasn't able to control, change in staff, change in strategy, change in management, those outside forces then make you kind of reflect as to sort of, okay, do I want to stay here under under this new environment or you know is it time to move on and and it's you know that it's always been it's always been that kind of those two I think probably those are the two main things that that have, have led me to kind of seek out new opportunities the other thing is also sort of lifestyle what kind of lifestyle do you want you know I grew up in in the south of England but when I came back from the US my my job was in London and I, I didn't want to live down there anymore. I didn't, I didn't enjoy, I love London. I love, you know, and, and the role I have now, you know, pre-COVID meant that I could, you know, go, go down and um, catch up with family and things because our head office is, is down in London. So I, I travel down to London quite a bit, but I couldn't see myself living there for any, any longer. It was a personal lifestyle choice as well. How did I end up in Edinburgh? <laughs> I have no ties here whatsoever. For me uh, and, and my husband, we just kind of said, right, we need to we need to move away from London. And actually anywhere, we're open to anywhere. Uh, there were certain requirements that we wanted to have access to open spaces, being able to, you know, access the countryside and things like that. And so at the time I was I was very fortunate. My my husband worked for a company that allowed him to work remotely. So he basically said, you know, he's very supportive and said, take your pick, go wherever you want and I'll come and I'll join you. I can, you know, I can basically work from wherever. And that's how I ended up in Edinburgh. And I've been here, been here for, for about 15 years now. These are very important considerations. People often say, well, I don't have a choice, but we actually do have a choice in, you know, in, in many ways. And 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 I guess also at different stages of our life, we are happy with certain work conditions, certain environment, while at other points, we just want something slightly different and kind of enacting our choices, I think is important. I think that's a really important point. I think, you know, I mean, I, I remember going, having the same thoughts that I didn't have a choice and I, I couldn't leave research. I'd invested so much of my life into, you know, into pursuing that career path that you know is it would it be sensible to 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 move away from that and I also my family also would not understand kind of why why would you why would you leave all that behind you when you worked so hard for it so you know you're grappling with all of these different questions and doubts but you do yeah absolutely you have a choice and I you know I and still now I probably keep in touch with a few friends who are very unhappy 
you know, continuing in, in the career path they've continued down. And, you know, they're still grappling with that. Well, you know, I've invested too much in this now to move away. Ultimately, you know, that's a decision for you. And if you if you can live with that and can manage and navigate your way through that, then, you know, that's, that's, that's for you. But for, for others, you know, you might go, well, actually, I need to take that step. I need to take that, 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 that move sideways or completely outside of science, which, you know, other, other people have done and make the, make the leap. So I like to uh, finish with you asking you your, your best five tips about navigating your, your career out of research or navigating your career within the, the professional environment that you're in. Okay, I'll try and give you five. <laughs> I guess the first is, you know, there is just so much information available to everyone now. You know, I, I, I'm of the generation I still, you know, remember the pre-internet days and we just spoil for choice. I mean, in some ways we have too much information and, and trying to kind of get through the, the, the rubbish information and finding the gems is, is probably the heart of it. But there is a wealth of information out there. So, so seek it out. There's, there's always going to be some interesting post or blog or network or some activity that, that you'll be able to, to make use of. If you're looking to navigate, I guess, and move, make a move away from a research career what you know what tip could I give you there I guess you know if you're still undecided about where you want to go because there is such a wealth of opportunities in terms of different types of types of roles you know think about what you really enjoy doing think about things you and equally important think about things you really hate what are the things that really make you miserable and you know that will give you a clear idea of what maybe then, you know, matching up against particular industries or roles that, that might suit what you want, you know, what you want to get out of those roles. Speak to people. You know, people are very happy on the most, in the most part to, to tell you a little bit about their roles. Make use of those kind of networking opportunities. You know, we're all on LinkedIn these days. There are so many communities out there. And I'm always... You know, I'm always getting feedback from from young researchers saying, oh, you know, they've been surprised by how willing people within the industry they want to get into have been with their time. And we're always happy to do that, because if you're interested in getting into that line of work, we're always happy to kind of help you try to make that move if that's what you want to do. And, and give you a, a bit of a steer around that because it is, it's, you know, it's not, it's not an easy decision to make. I would always, also, you know, coming back to that point, you know, try and get some experience. If it's volunteering, if there are opportunities that, that you can take that will give you some element of what the job role might entail, seek it out. Um, and I guess lastly is, is, you know, when you make that first move from, from a research position into uh, a different career don't be don't be upset by the number of rejection letters you get when you apply for jobs it's 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 a long hard slog just stick in there and and you'll get there that's brilliant thank you so much lots of really good ideas there for people and i think that first step that first transition step is you know is always difficult and then i think that once people have done it once 
you know, it gets easier. And I think that's often the, the case of, you know, the process of letting go of, you know, the research identity and ha- getting into a, an identity that you, you are a professional and, you know, you don't belong to just one place. For me, I've seen in, in with the researchers that I've worked with that, that thing of letting go and embracing a new professional identity is a really important element. Uh, Yes, it is, definitely. It's a, it's, a, it's a big one to get over. All right. Well, really a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. To finalise, I'd like to make three points from the discussion with Amy. Three things which um, I found really interesting. The first one is about being mentally prepared when we are in periods of transition, whether professionally or personally. The mental framework that we have about what the transition is about is really important. Another point that uh, Evie made, which I really loved, was this idea of the treasure hunt, becoming a treasure hunter in the way that we seek um, skills, experiencing professional experiences in the way that we transition from one role to the next. Often we focus on the notion of skills, which uh, I found pretty tedious personally. And so the idea of becoming a treasure hunter is, is a really lovely way of framing the, what we acquire in each position that we, that we hold and how we can take a treasure from one job to the next. And the final point is about keeping asking the, the questions, what are you going to do next? Whether we're asking this question to ourselves or whether we're asking uh, the questions to the people that we supervise or manage in helping them to make the most of their current position, in preparing them to move into their, their next role, helping others to gather their treasures for their next role and helping ourselves to gather our treasures. So I, I thought these were really, really lovely points. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation and I will see you on the next podcast.